This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Green News Report, The Progressive, NPR, The Young Turks, Media Matters, The Majority Report, and The Rachel Maddow Show. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode contains references to science. Julie, here is your next quote. It's meteorological March madness. That was what the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is calling this March. It was very unusual. Why? Um, it was the hottest March? It was one of the hottest months ever in terms of being over its average temperature. Oh so, you know... How much fun you had in March, going for walks in your t-shirt and shorts, admiring the flowers and trees, tossing your dog to your frisbee. Well, I hope you all enjoyed the end of the world. Believe it or not, that was an extreme weather event, one of the warmest marches ever. More than 20,000 local temperature records were broken in one month. That's, was, w- that's winning in a different way. It is. <laughs> Al Gore is winning now. Yeah. But all that fun you were having, it was a disaster. It was the picnipocalypse. Now we know the world won't end with a bang, but with an alfresco brunch on the terrace. (laughs) I think think this is the return of La Nina. I think uh, uh, if we sealed our borders, we wouldn't have this problem. (laughs) Really? Wouldn't let those foreign weather patterns... No, El Nino and and La Nina would have never come here if we built that wall. Exactly. <laughs> and we wouldn't have any irregular temperatures. But, but this disaster, this, this sort of pleasant disaster, was why the Weather Channel had all those reports from grim-faced field reporters standing in lovely meadows in shorts and Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> it's terrible out here, Phil. You can see the grass gently blowing in the breeze behind me. Thousands of residents here desperately in need of wine coolers and aperitifs. <laughs> but this is what it means. Like, if this goes on, the entire country will become Southern California. Oh, which, no. which cannot work. <laughs> Crusty Maine lobstermen will be getting boob jobs and abandoning their traps to go to auditions. Well, it's official. March 2012 was the warmest March on record for the U.S., according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Over 15,000 distinct all-time local weather temperature records were broken, with average March temperatures nearly 9 degrees warmer than the 20th century average for March. The first quarter of 2012 is also the warmest on record. And the last 12 months the warmest 12-month period on record. Importantly, the draft analysis from NOAA concludes that the March heat wave was fueled in part by global warming from human activity. They said that it added to the magnitude of the heat wave. 
But up in Alaska, Anchorage saw the opposite extreme. The same weather patterns that withheld snow in the U.S. instead dumped it all on Anchorage, breaking that city's all-time seasonal snowfall record. Europe and Russia also saw record snowstorms. Climate scientists have predicted for decades that global warming would lead to a trend toward more frequent extreme weather events, and that connection was even mentioned out loud on CNN. Here's meteorologist Alexandra Steele. The climate change we're seeing, you know, extremes kind of are ruling the roost and really what we're seeing more become the norm so the colds are colder and the warms are warmer and the severe is more severe the colds are colder and the warms are warmer no she's not talking about the meek dlt she's talking about what we've been talking about over the past three years here on the green news report as we see this week in week out more extreme temperatures more extreme highs more extreme lows more extreme tornadoes floods droughts fires it's amazing and it's as if it's not even happening in the bulk of the mainstream corporate media now while the march heat wave was a guilty pleasure for many accustomed to snow in the north these unstable weather patterns have consequences The warm winter has fueled an early tornado season in the south and midwest, and the dry air is fueling an eruption of brush fires along the length of the eastern seaboard. Here's NBC's Al Roker. Many fires going on throughout the east. Milford, Connecticut, they had to suspend Amtrak service. Staten Island has wildfires going on. And then in New Jersey, a forest fire burning there. The blaze began earlier today in Burlington County. And as far south as Florida, we're talking about drought conditions, no rain in sight. At least 20 wildfires are going on. We are looking at fire conditions from New York City all the way down to Greenville as far west as parts of western Kentucky. Now last summer we saw record fires in Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and now we're seeing wildfires and drought in the northeast where it's usually rainy this time of year? Yep, but wait, there's more. Another unexpected consequence of the exceptionally warm winter Weak demand for home heating has created an oversupply of natural gas, and the U.S. is running out of places to store it. The controversial natural gas drilling technique of fracking has triggered a frenzy of drilling across the country. The industry-induced oversupply has depressed natural gas prices so much that several natural gas companies have announced they will cut back on drilling operations and even close some wells in an effort to boost profits. But the oversupply of natural gas is, frankly, the least of our problems when it comes to fracking as we learn in this new report. Yes, the slowdown in natural gas fracking is good news for homeowners because it means fewer earthquakes. A new study from the U.S. Geological Survey concludes that fracking is, quote, almost certainly behind the jump in earthquakes across the Midwest over the last few years. Unbelievable. They say it appears to be linked to oil and gas drilling, especially wastewater injection wells. So now the fossil fuel industry is causing our own planet to crumble. Let's all look the other way, shall we? The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. 
Heroes of my high school mind As I distribute nutty bars like the school lunch line you don't have to convince me about global warming. I've been living in Madison, Wisconsin over the last 30 years, and I've felt how the winters just aren't so cold anymore. This winter in particular was practically non-existent with little snow and no frigid temperatures. February was downright balmy, and March felt more like late May. We had five days where the temperature got to 80 or above. This has happened only 10 times in more than 100 years. The trees are a month ahead of schedule with their blossoms, and birds are returning earlier than ever. Someone even saw a hummingbird in Madison in March. While we were guiltily basking in the sun, scientists were meeting in London to assess just what's going on, and they're very worried. The Planet Under Pressure Conference issued a statement on March 29th which said, Research now demonstrates that the continued functioning of the Earth system as it has supported the well-being of human civilization in recent centuries is at risk. Without urgent action, it says, we could face threats to water, food, biodiversity, and other critical resources. These threats, it goes on, risk intensifying economic, ecological, and social crises, creating the potential for a humanitarian emergency on a global scale. Well, you can't say we haven't been warned. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. weather we've been having. Today's weather had a lot of folks thinking spring has sprung. And people well, were our unusually warm temperatures lately have many green-thumbed Iowans already hitting their local greenhouses. With weather that we usually see in mid-June, folks are getting a jump on sprucing up the outside. We're doing things that we would normally do maybe in late April, early May. Local news from Burlington, Vermont, Des Moines, Iowa, and Cleveland, Ohio. Throughout the month of March, you've probably heard the same stories on your local news. Across the country, more than 7,700 daily temperature records broken last month on the heels of the fourth warmest winter on record. Sure, it may be time to lay on a blanket in a park, but climate scientists are worried. They say all these sunny days are actually an extreme weather event, one with local and global implications. Let's start in Iowa, where March was so hot. A record-breaking 84 degrees hot, to be exact. Some crops in Iowa are now running way ahead of schedule. Joe Prasaki, a statistician with the USDA, says this time of year, the state usually has just 7% of its oats planted. And right now, they're at 58% planted. Well, that's because if you plant the crop now, it's going to germinate and grow. Wow, so they've planted more than half of their crop already. True. It's hard to say whether that could be good for farmers, since crops could still get hit with frost as late as April or May, and then you're in trouble. You could be in trouble, yes. And if you've got allergies, maybe you already are in trouble. We probably won't see much relief until mid-summer when things do calm down. Jim Sublett is an allergist in Louisville, Kentucky. He said patients have been coming to him with runny noses, itchy eyes, even asthma flare-ups since mid-February. Which is probably about a month earlier. The problem with that is because of the longer exposure, those people may be at risk of having more severe problems as the season goes along. So if you start earlier, 
you just suffer longer. That's exactly right. In Vermont, they're dreading early leaves for an entirely different reason. Arnold Coombs is a seventh-generation maple syrup farmer. It used to be another kid. You would never tap a tree before what we call town meeting day, which is the first Tuesday of March. This year, you had to be tapping by the second week just to get those first runs of sap. Every spring, syrup farmers have to move fast because when trees sprout leaves, it changes the chemical composition of the syrup. As soon as that change happens, the syrup is not very good. Now, the problem this year is that happened very early. So production is down. You may see syrup prices up this year. You may also see higher crime, says Martin Flask, director of public safety in Cleveland. Well, you know, Cleveland is normally a cold Midwest city. Even though in the long term crime is trending downward throughout the country and in Cleveland, homicides and burglaries are up compared to this time last year. And we've seen a significant spike that, in our mind, can be caused by nothing else other than uh, the weather. Scientists say we'll probably see more mosquitoes, more Lyme disease, more accidents since people are outside more biking, hiking, and driving. Heidi Cullen, a climatologist with the research organization Climate Central, has been closely following our spring heat wave. And I asked her, how unusual is this spring heat? You know, I think this past March, it's hard to really get a sense of how big of a deal it was for, you know, colleagues of mine in the National Weather Service. It was crazy. I mean, we were breaking records by upwards of 40 degrees. I mean, it was this really ironic extreme weather event because it was one of these rare extreme weather events that you were just like, I'm loving this. (laughs) But at the same time, it was incredibly, incredibly unusual. Because it's hard to view a nice warm spring day as an extreme weather event. Absolutely. You know, and I think this is actually one of the challenges of talking about climate in many ways, because even heat waves, you know, when they're happening in the midst of July or August, they're hard to really visualize. Right. Because these would be considered normal temperatures just later in the year. I mean, Chicago broke records for April in March. It was incredibly unusual. So these massive tornadoes in Texas this week, we know that scientists are hesitant to link tornado outbreaks to climate change. Why? We're still studying tornadoes, and there's there's such small-scale events that they're difficult to really embrace and understand the physics of. But at the same time, we're seeing this sort of shifting of, of Tornado Alley. It's sort of moving further east. We know that, that the warm gulf and these warm temperatures certainly help contribute to the formation of these tornadoes. So Because the people on the other side say, well, we just report them more, people see them more, absolutely. areas are more populated. It's, it's one of these things where with tornado data, it's really difficult because of you know when Doppler radar came along and we've got all of these storm chasers out there. So we've got a natural trend just by virtue of technology and more folks tracking tornadoes. But that that is really, I think, an incredibly active field of research right now, and it's it's going to be really interesting to see what happens there. So is it fair to say that warmer weather creates extreme weather? Yes, it is. Certain kinds of extremes. I think, you know, one way to look at it is if you increase the Earth's average temperature by about 1.4 degrees, which is what we've done, you see that penetrate into the weather in especially heat extremes. So we expect heat waves, um, and you can think of March as sort of a springtime example of a heat wave. We expect them to last longer, which this one did, to affect broader areas, which this one did, and to be more intense, which this one was. So it's kind of, mm. you know, it's storybook type of incident that we expect to see more and more of. We also see it play out in terms of rainfall events. So we expect to see more intense, heavy rainfall events when they happen.
So if it's been a warmer spring, does that mean that we're going to have a really hot summer? You know, it's funny because intuitively, I feel like a lot of us are feeling that way now. Like, oh my goodness, if March was this warm, if, if you know, December, January, February were warm, we're totally toast this summer. Yeah. And it's not the case. I mean, there's no, no correlation really um, across what happens in winter and what happens in the summer. It's hard to say exactly how much warmer the summer will be. But, you know, I will say the Climate Prediction Center, part of NOAA, indicates an above average summer. So given all this, are we in trouble? I think what we have in front of us is a case of an issue where the sooner we get started working on it, the better. The thing about climate change is that there's time lags in the system. So you can argue that the climate change that we're seeing right now is a byproduct of what we did in the 1980s, right? I often hear folks say, well, let's just wait and see how bad it gets. And that sounds kind of rational. But because of the time lags in the system, if you wait, you've really got problems. So it's this exercise in trusting long-range forecasts for the future, trusting the science, essentially, because the science tells us that if we don't do anything about this problem, you know, by the middle and the end of the century, we're looking at really a radically different climate. That's Heidi Cullen. She's chief climatologist at Climate Central and author of The Weather of the Future. Turning globally... This week, the U.N. International Panel on Climate Change released a report. It says we're more likely to face extreme weather events in coming decades. Things like more intense heat waves, heavier rainfalls, longer droughts. But the report doesn't focus on things we can do to prevent or slow climate change. Instead, it tells people how to cope better with weather disasters it says we're all more likely to face. Christopher Field, a climate scientist at Stanford, was a top editor on the report. The statistics on disaster loss are interesting, um, tragic. What you see historically is that the economic losses tend to be greatest in the developed countries, but the loss of life tends to be overwhelmingly concentrated. 95% of recent loss of life has been in the world's developing countries. That mm. doesn't mean that developing countries never take smart steps to deal with disasters, however. Uh, we've seen dramatic improvement in Bangladesh, for example. Bangladesh had some of the most destructive tropical cyclones in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And by the time Tropical Cyclone Cedar hit in 2007, they'd implemented a whole series of smart, relatively low-cost strategies that really minimized loss of life. What did they do different? Bangladesh had a history of experience, and they really made three kinds of investments. They made platforms where livestock could be raised above the storm surge or where people could gather. They implemented early warning systems and made sure that people knew that they should move to high ground when storms were predicted. And they also established civilian response teams so that disaster aid was more quickly delivered and much more effectively delivered as a consequence, mainly of volunteer efforts. One of the things that's impressive about these investments that Bangladesh made is that they weren't terribly expensive, but they were very effective. Christopher, Bangladesh has made such strides. What cities have not made strides? What we see is two kinds of places where those strategies aren't really being deployed. One is areas so resource-strapped that they don't have, you can think of it as the bandwidth to make the investments that are necessary. And in areas that have high levels of civil strife, that really tends to be a problem. And the other place is areas that are vulnerable but haven't had a recent experience that have driven home that vulnerability. So if you were to look at a map... 
where would you point to? The problem with trying to draw a map is we know that essentially every part of the world is vulnerable to some kind of an extreme or disaster. I think if you had asked U.S. citizens prior to Hurricane Katrina if there was a major vulnerability to a Category 4 hurricane, people would have said, you know, it's a risk, but it's one that we think we have under control. Once the hurricane occurred, we knew that there were gaps in our preparation and in our responsibility. When we look at where the extremes have occurred in the United States over the last year, uh, we see them essentially everywhere. Droughts in the west, uh, floods in the northeast, tornadoes in the middle. It really is the case that there is no place on the map that is totally immune to climate extremes and disasters. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, we've been telling you about Keystone Pipeline for a long time, and I was pleasantly surprised to see that President Obama had blocked the pipeline coming in from Canada to the U.S., uh, and I thought that was a tough political move, and I gave him credit for it, and uh, guess what he's done? He's backtracked on half of it. Okay, how so? Uh, he is uh, now uh, throwing his support behind TransCanada's move to actually build a pipeline that goes from uh, Oklahoma to the Gulf of Mexico. So they have not yet gotten approval for, and President Obama has blocked the approval from the part that comes in from Canada to our Midwest. But basically, Midwest and Oklahoma on, it's of course throughout the country then, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. That part they are going to okay, and in fact they're excited about. In fact, Jay Carney was out there singing its praises about how it's going to create jobs, lower gas prices, et cetera, et cetera. Now, who asked you to do this? I mean, already the Republicans said, you not doing this pipeline is a disaster, et cetera, et cetera. And at least you had won some favor with the environmentalists for not doing the pipeline and not approving of it, et cetera. And it looked like you had gotten your base excited. So why, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this preemptive half a concession? What good is it going to do you? So. First of all, environmental groups, of course, are now outraged. International program of the National Resources Defense Council is speaking out against it. Friends of the Earth is speaking out against it. And they make a very good point. So first, there's the environmental point, which is that this is going to make air pollution worse. It's going to threaten our heartland with costly oil spills. Uh, we've already told you that a pipeline has got shoddy production on it. In fact, we didn't tell you. One of the guys building it said it. There was an insider that came out and said, they cannot keep building it this way. It's going to leak, okay? 
Put that stuff aside, which you shouldn't because that's a major issue. But what is the point of this? The problem is that it, you were making an argument earlier, the people who were in favor of the Keystone Pipeline, saying that, well, we need to bring the oil into the country because then uh, that means we've got more oil here. But this actually takes oil out of the country and brings it to the Gulf Coast where they sell it to other countries. So actually, as these groups are pointing out, it might increase gas prices here in the U.S. When asked about that, Jay Carney says, well, we had a glut of oil in the Midwest anyway. Our problem is we have too much domestic oil? But okay, great, then why don't we celebrate that? Why don't Republicans and Democrats come out and say, great, we finally got too much oil in America? No, they keep telling me the opposite problem is the case. So they concede, do you understand that? They concede that yes, we're gonna take the oil in America and we're gonna ship it out to other places. Who, to whose benefit is that? The oil companies, of course. So the oil companies benefit, we lose, we get the environmental problems, we get the possible spills, and our gas prices might increase. So all this is done presumably to satiate the Republicans who have been complaining all along, right? I can't see any other reason. Now you went and pissed off your base again and you got no results for the American people. So what did you do it for? All right, Republicans. Well, uh, here's what John Boehner, spokesperson Michael Steele said. Quote, it's good news that progress is continuing on a project that would create tens of thousands of American jobs and keep Canada from selling North American energy to the Chinese. Well, that sounds good. But it also makes the Obama administration's refusal to approve it even more disturbing. Well, you look at that. It turns out the Republicans are not appeased. In fact, they're saying you approving of half of this pipeline makes you not approving of the other half even worse. Shocking. You're halfway compromised, you're half a loaf, your preemptive concession didn't work. Huh. Boy, golly gee, that's gotta be the first time I saw that movie. How unique. It's like the artist, that silent movie. Oh, whoa, look at that. What am I gonna do with this guy, man? Every frickin' opportunity. As soon as he's got an advantage, he can't wait to give it back to the Republicans. He's never gonna learn. Never gonna learn. Never, never gonna, gonna learn. learn. Never gonna change Never gonna be the way you want me to be I wasn't built that way It's never gonna work We're going down in flames We were together, now you take what you want and just leave me Or else you will get hurt Never gonna change Never gonna learn Okay, Des, the Republicans are still going on and on about the Keystone XL pipeline. Yes, they are. Claiming that it would have lowered gas prices. That is just not true, is it's it? It's not true at all. In fact, it could do the exact opposite, according to a new analysis by Bloomberg News, corroborating analysis from critics of the proposed pipeline. Bloomberg estimates that the Keystone XL pipeline could raise gas prices at the pump for consumers by as much as 20 cents a gallon in the Midwest and Rocky Mountain states because it would eliminate the current glut of crude oil at refineries in Oklahoma. One industry analyst said, quote, the Canadian plan was always to use their market power to raise prices in the U.S. and get more money from consumers. And that glut of oil and the oil coming down from Canada would be set to be shipped out of country, not to be used here in the U.S. That's right. 
President Obama is calling for a vote in Congress to end the oil industry's lucrative tax breaks. Big Oil receives about $4 billion a year, that's $4 billion with a B, in taxpayer subsidies and other incentives every year. In a speech promoting federal investment in clean energy at a college in Nashua, New Hampshire on Thursday, Obama called on leaders in Congress to vote to repeal those subsidies to help reduce the federal deficit. Let's put every single member of Congress on record. You can, you can stand with the oil companies or you can stand up for the American people. You can keep subsidizing a fossil fuel that's been getting taxpayer dollars for a century, or you can place your bets on a clean energy future. He also pointed out once again that fossil fuel corporations are enjoying all-time record profits. They don't need this money. That's true, and they're also paying record low numbers in taxes. While I'm paying record high prices at the pump. Lucky them. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. The hosts of Fox & Friends are following the channel's company policy of casting doubt on climate science. Here's co-anchor Steve Ducey talking to Republican Senator James Inhofe. It's just a hoax. It's not being caused by people. And meanwhile, you got environmentalists and people on the political left in this country who are standing by trying to use it as a convenient excuse to redistribute wealth in this country. Those who have this agenda they're using essentially fear not facts to try to get people and using the mainstream media because they're all in the tank for this to try to get that passed but the fact remains the earth is warming and mainstream scientists agree that climate change is largely driven by human activities despite overwhelming evidence fox continues to suggest that global warming is just a big hoax Guardian reports that the Heartland Institute, which is a uh, right-wing think tank based in Chicago, long pushed misinformation about climate change, uh, has lost some emails and uh, mistakenly sent some emails to a third party that it didn't mean to. I should also say they're claiming that some of the documents are real and some of them are fake. You know, that always happens. Someone gets emailed documents that they shouldn't have and then they also go fake some more. One of the things revealed in these documents is that they have one anonymous donor who has given this entity more than eight and a half million dollars between 2007 and 2011. He donated 3.3 million the same year that Heartland began its annual climate change conference. This guy really, really doesn't believe in climate change. Or, more precisely, really wants to convince other people that climate change is not real. There was another document which says that Heartland is developing a global warming curriculum for K through 12 classrooms. And this document, which I think uh, this is the one that Heartland says is fake, 
principals and teachers are heavily biased towards the alarmist perspective. To counter this, we are considering launching an effort to develop alternative materials for K-12 classrooms. We're pursuing a proposal from da da Dr. David Wojcik to produce a global warming curriculum for K-12 schools. Wojcik is a consultant with the Office of Scientific and Technical Information at the U.S. Department of Energy. In the area of information and communication science, his effort will focus on, on providing curriculum that shows the topic of climate change is confer, uh, co controversial and uncertain. Two key points that are effective at dissuading teachers from teaching science. High on the hill was a lonely goat herd. We tentatively plan to pay Dr. Wojcik $100,000 for 20 modules in 2012 with funding pledged by the anonymous donor. In addition, Heartland paid a team of writers 388000 in 2011 to write a series of reports to undermine, not refute, not analyze, not to show flaws in, but simply to undermine the official United Nations IPCC reports, which are reports by literally hundreds or, or thousands of scientists around the world who say that there's a 95% chance, 98% chance that uh, global warming is man-made. Yeah. I'm going to bet on the other 4%. I'm just going to let it fly, man. And instead of spending a dollar on a lottery ticket, I'm just going to bet the future of the planet with about the same odds. Heartland, incidentally, uh, confirms that it mistakenly uh, emailed these uh, internal documents. But then goes on to allege that one of these documents, like I said, is a fake. So uh, we shall see, but it is just one more uh, indication that there are some very rich people. And, you know, this story is not much different from the drone story. You have corporate interests that essentially incentivize bad policy in this country and that matter around the world. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm with Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy... I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at 
majority.fm. Here is Oklahoma Senator James Inhofe. My point is God's still up there. And this is the arrogance of people who think that we, human beings, would be able to change what he is doing in the climate is, to me, outrageous. Senator James Inhofe on global warming. This is one of those issues where if you participate in only conservative media and consult only conservative authorities, you have a totally different understanding about what's happening in the world than the rest of the world does. For example, uh, take what they call climate gate. In November 2009, someone, we still don't know who, somebody apparently leaked or stole a bunch of emails between scientists at the University of East Anglia in England. There were scientists who were working in the climate research unit. Now, this seemed like a huge scandal at the time. The Senator Inhofe's of the world are right. The most damning snippets, the most damning excerpts of the emails made it seem like scientists were manipulating data and doing other shady things to convince us that the Earth is warming when the Earth is not, in fact, warming. The most damning sentence, at least from the I don't believe in global warming point of view, uh, is an email from the director of the Climatic Research Unit at the University of East Anglia. It's a professor named Phil Jones. And he wrote in this email, quote, I've just completed Mike's nature trick of adding in the real temps to each series for the last 20 years, i.e. from 1981 onwards and from 1961 for Keats, to hide the decline. There it is right there. See? Those scientists are using tricks to hide the fact that the Earth's temperature is actually declining. These emails, if you read through them, they're, they're pretty damaging. Oh, say the, and I'm being gentle. Oh, they're, they're truly damaging. They're, they're, it's it's, it's hard, to, hard to say how damaging they are. I mean, you've got people saying, we need to use that trick to hide the decline. Yeah, what they call Mike's trick. I'm going to add certain temperatures onto other temperatures. Now, Phil Jones, the scientist who wrote that email that's getting taken apart there on Fox News, Phil Jones uh, tried to speak up in his own defense. He said, quote, the word trick was used here colloquially as in a clever thing to do. It is ludicrous to suggest that it refers to anything untoward. Yeah, right, you climate hoaxing scientist. Then again, the hide the decline part of this damning email Turns out, also, that wasn't about hiding declining temperatures. What they were hiding in the data was the fact that tree rings are less reliable as thermometers after 1960. Uh, we don't exactly know why, but it is a documented thing that if you're using tree rings as the way to tell what temperature things are, that gets less accurate after 1960. So if you were using tree rings to show temperatures a long time ago, and that is one of the only ways to tell temperatures from hundreds or thousands of years ago, it can be misleading to use tree rings as your temperature gauge for data that covers the last 50 years. Luckily, in the last 50 years, we've got other ways of telling temperature. There are other temperature records around. So you can combine that recent data with the tree ring information so as to make sure you're keeping the data on temperature accurate over time. Scientists work like that. Science sometimes works like that. The data has to be as accurate as possible. And since data doesn't come down from a mountain on a stone tablet, you have to work to keep the data accurate. Using the word trick and hide in explaining how to keep the tree ring temperature data accurate 
makes it sound awful if you take it out of context and put it on Fox News, right? But until these emails were stolen from these scientists, these were scientists emailing each other at work, fully in context, and there is nothing weird about what they were saying. I know, I can hear you now, though. Why believe Maddo? Why believe me? I'm part of a global conspiracy to convince you that the Earth is heating up. All right, if you don't believe me, how about this? The University of East Anglia paid an independent commission. They paid for an independent commission to investigate whether the scientists were being unethical, whether the scientists were trying to cook the books or falsify data or unduly influence other people. Nobody on the review team was a part of the university. That investigation's 160-page report found that, quote, their rigor and honesty as scientists are not in doubt. In addition, we do not find that their behavior has prejudiced the balance of advice given to policy makers. They did find one bad thing. They said there has been a consistent pattern of failing to display the proper degree of openness. That was the criticism. Not enough transparency, everything else pretty much all good. I know, though. This investigation was funded by this university. I know a global conspiracy when I see one. I don't believe that either. How about the British Parliament? You think they're part of the conspiracy? The British Parliament also investigated these scientists and the emails and the university. They found that the contents of the emails showed discussions and activities that were in line with common practice. Quote, the phrases such as trick or hiding the decline were colloquial terms used in private emails. They were not part of a systematic attempt to mislead. Researchers from Penn State also investigated the emails in ClimateGate uh, because one of the professors whose emails uh, were stolen was a Penn State guy. Um, they found no wrongdoing when Penn State looked into it. The EPA, uh, EPA looked into it. They found no wrongdoing. Most of the world who has taken any time to figure out what happened here knows that the gate should be removed from ClimateGate. There was no gate here. There was no real scandal. But this is where the rest of the world and the conservative world diverge. If you get your news only from right-wing sources, if you only trust conservatives with whom you already agree, the lesson here is that the whole global warming thing was disproven by that email scandal. It's over now. Senator James Inhofe has just written a book about how it's all over now. And one of the chapters, chapter six, is called Climate Gate. Climate Gate equals vindication. That's the title of the chapter. Vindication of his career-defining crusade to prove to the world that global warming is not happening. Also, according to Senator Inhofe's very entertaining book, uh, even if it is happening, of course, global warming isn't that big a deal, and even if it is a big deal, uh, as you heard at the top of the segment there, um, God will probably take care of it anyway, and we should not be so arrogant as to think that we should get in God's way of taking care of it. Rick Santorum's getting wackier and wackier on global warming. Last week he said, the dangers of carbon dioxide? Tell that to a plant. 
Then, in his rambling concession speech after the Illinois primary Tuesday night, Santorum continued his anti-science tirade. First, he mocked those who say that the oil and gas and coal in the ground is all a source of carbon dioxide, and we can't take that out of the ground because it could damage our environment. His fans cheered his derision of that sensible view, and they cheered him when he said, I know this isn't climate science, this is political science. What does he know or care about actual science? Nothing. He went on to denounce the Obama administration for trying to limit global warming. This was another attempt, he said, of those who want to take power away from you and control your access to energy, whether it's in your car or in your home. Then, in a feeble effort to be clever, he used the expression climate change to try to score political points against Romney and Gingrich, saying that when the political climate changed, they changed their position. He vowed never to change his. Santorum's trying to make a virtue of his flat-earth views, and he'd persecute Galileo all over again if he could. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Okay, Des, there's a new study out today which may explain all of the problems we are currently having in this country. Conservatives, particularly those with college educations, have become dramatically more skeptical of science over the past four decades, according to a new study in the American Sociological Review. It finds that fewer than 35% of self-identified conservatives say they have a, quote, great deal of trust in the scientific community now, compared to nearly half back in 1974. The study's author says the growing distrust of science is entirely focused in two groups, conservatives and people who frequently attend church. And are you really surprised? Uh, no, I'm not, but it's nice to see it in an official study. What do you have for us today, Des? President Obama weighed in on the fight of whether to repeal oil industry subsidies, speaking in the White House Rose Garden on Thursday morning, in advance of a vote in the U.S. Senate. They can either vote to spend billions a dollars more in oil subsidies that keep us trapped in the past, or they can vote to end these taxpayer subsidies that aren't needed to boost oil production so that we can invest in the future. But in spite of the president's words, minutes later, the emotion is not agreed to. Big oil won in the Senate again. Like all other attempts to repeal oil industry subsidies previously, the measure failed to reach the supermajority of 60 votes required to beat a Republican filibuster. The vote was 51 to 47, with four Democrats voting with the Republicans, Mary Landrew of Louisiana, Ben Nelson of Nebraska, Mark Begich of Alaska, and Jim Webb of Virginia. Any Republicans voting with the Democrats to end oil subsidies? Yes, the two Republican senators from Maine, the retiring Olympia Snow, 
and Susan Collins, voting with Republicans against repealing the subsidies with Senator Rand Paul, who made it clear who he serves during debate on the Senate floor. We as a society need to glorify those who make a profit. I would think you would want to say to the oil companies, what obstacles are there to you making more money? Immediately after the vote in a scathing rebuke on the Senate floor, Democratic Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill slammed the hypocrisy of congressional Republicans for gutting services for the 99 percent while voting to continue giving billions in taxpayer dollars to the oil companies. How seriously can we take anybody that talks about debt reduction if they're not willing to pluck the low-hanging fruit of subsidies to a group of folks that, frankly, in Missouri, I guarantee you most people I represent would say they are the least deserving of extra help from the federal government right now. 88% of all oil and gas campaign contributions go to the Republican Party. You think you got it, oh, you think you got it, but got it, just don't get it till there's nothing at all. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. America, there are no longer any Republicans for Environmental Protection. Republicans for Environmental Protection do not exist anymore. Uh, they used to exist. This was their logo. Uh, but they have abolished themselves as of today. Getting rid of the Republicans for Environmental Protection name, uh, perhaps because it had started to sound like a laugh line, um, they have instead rechristened themselves Conserve America. I know the name sounds like a scam mortgage company that's going to trick your grandmother out of her house, maybe, or perhaps a Newt Gingrich Inc. scam direct fax campaign that pledges to give you a prestigious award if you mail Newt thousands of dollars. But Conserve America is actually the new name of the artist formerly known as Republicans for Environmental Protection. They've dropped ostentatiously the word Republican from their name. Before their big name change, uh, this was their honorary board. It included 22 Republican members of Congress. Notice that 17 of the 22 are retired members of Congress. Yeah, it's a good question. How many current Republican members of Congress want to be known as caring about environmental issues? Just in the first year after taking control of the House, Republicans in the House voted to strip environmental protections more than 150 times. The thing is, this all seems to have happened to the Republican Party kind of fast. It was only the last Republican election when the Republican ticket, remember, was running on cap and trade. Joe Lieberman and I, my favorite Democrat, and I have proposed legislation which is called cap and trade. So this cap and trade, that there will be incentives for people to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's a free market approach. He's got a good cap and trade policy that he supports. It was only 2008. The Republican ticket in favor of cap and trade. Within just two years, the exact same people were vociferously denouncing this thing that they had just run on. 
I have to address a little bit of the cap and tax, is what I call it, not cap and trade, and the devastation, as was already um, suggested, it, that it would have on our country if it were to pass. I will not and cannot align myself with a giant government slush fund. Even worse than the financial hits that our country and we as individuals would take with cap and tax, it would so disincentivize work ethic and industry and production because we are so reliant on our energy sources. It's cap and tax. It's cap and tax. What changed? This was your own idea. Similarly, when Mitt Romney was governor of Massachusetts back in 2003, he liked the idea as well. Uh, Think Progress this week published this letter that Mitt Romney wrote to George Pataki, New York's governor that year. It says, quote, I concur that climate change is beginning to affect our natural resources and that now is the time to take action toward climate protection. I believe that our joint work to create a flexible market-based regional cap and trade system could serve as an effective approach to meeting these goals. What changed? Mitt Romney decided to run for president. He pulled out of the regional cap-and-trade system, and he now says that cap-and-trade is the gateway to hell. What changed? Cap-and-trade uh, was originally proposed by conservatives and Republicans as a market-based solution to solving environmental problems. The first president to talk about cap and trade was George H.W. Bush. Now you've got the other party essentially saying we shouldn't even be thinking about environmental protection. Let's gut the EPA. President Obama, the Democrats, they think they may have a winning issue here. Not in necessarily selling their own ideas about environmental protection but rather selling the Republicans' wholesale abandonment of this issue. As Republicans for Environmental Protection strips the word Republican out of their name, are Democrats on track to strip away centrist voters, centrist Republican voters who at least used to care about the issue? Are they on track to strip those voters from a Republican party that clearly no longer cares about that issue? This week, the boisterous co-hosts of Fox's The Five got into a spirited discussion about climate change. The show's conservative-heavy panel opined that much of the concern over global warming is overblown. When co-host Bob Beckel noted the dramatic decrease in livable habitats for polar bears, Greg Gutfeld responded in an agitated manner. Can I say something about this? Even if there is global warming and it's going at a slight point, you know, sliver of Celsius, even though science is measured by Kelvin, even if it's a slight, it's good for human beings. If a polar bear dies, I don't feel bad. Honestly, oh I don't. Now you've done I it. I don't. No, human beings, when, they're, when, when temperature goes up, human beings live longer. Climate change experts have noted that extreme weather, strain on water resources, and other ecosystem changes tied to global warming have serious negative consequences for human society. The other night on Real Time with Bill Maher, uh, Bob Lutz was on there, and he's a former auto executive and a current right winger. And he said something uh, patently wrong, and I wanted to show you guys what that is and prove him wrong. So first let's listen. The last 15 years 
CO2 has gone up by several points, and global temperatures have stayed stable or slightly. No, higher. again, yeah, they in have. The, but here, the, the global warming. The, the, the last there. decade was the hottest decade on record. Fact. Not so. Two thousand. So, not so. so? No, what? No. What are you reading that I'm not no, reading? No, no, no. Okay, so there's a dispute, right? And this is a classic right-wing trick. You don't have to have facts. You just go on television and you say, no, not so. You gave me facts, I give you nothing in return. Okay, I say, not true, not true. Blah, 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 blah. So let's look into the facts. Well, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration put out a report, and they cited 300 scientists in 160 research groups in 48 different countries that all came to the same conclusion. Conclusion is, the past decade was the warmest on record. That is a quote. Warmest on record. 48 different countries, 160 research groups, 300 scientists, they all agree. There is no other side. And then when you uh, go further, they say, quote, the earth has been growing warmer over the last 50 years. These are the conclusions of 97% of the world's scientists. And other 3% are basically working for ExxonMobil and, and the car companies and all the other people that uh, gain from pollution like Bob Lutz. It's a made-up debate. The real facts are in. But you're not satisfied with that? We'll give you more. In fact, they said seven different rising indicators because of climate change. Air temperature over land is rising. Sea surface temperature, rising. Air temperature over oceans, rising. Sea level, rising. Ocean heat, rising. Humidity in uh, tropospheric temperature in the active weather layer closest to the Earth, rising. They're all rising according to all of those scientists. So when Bob Lutz goes out there to get paid by the people who do the pollution, by the people who put out uh, this, uh, the chemicals in our air that causes global warming and climate change, he wants to confuse the American people, but he's lying through his teeth, okay? Now, look at this. Deck, this is the average land surface uh, temperature throughout all the years here. I want to put up this graph. And it starts in the 1800s, okay? And you see it's you know, fairly steady until we get to you know, the, uh, the 20th century. It starts to rise a little bit. And then once you get to about 1980, it starts to skyrocket. Now... What scientists have been saying all along is, this is not a coincidence. We can show you how it is man-made. And you can't argue with that. It's a fact. But it, they don't care about the facts because they get paid to lie to you. Okay, now how about that relating to extreme weather? Because that's the thing that people don't make that connection at all on television. And they need to. Because look, I would have been skeptical about this a couple of years ago. But now the data is in. And, and Bob Lutz, throughout that whole program on Real Time with Bill Maher, is like, <laughs> the world hasn't, you know, destroyed itself yet. And Al Gore told us that we were going to, you know, have everything, you know, melt away. No, he didn't say that. He said these things happen incrementally. And look at the data as it, the temperature is rising and extreme weather is rising. But Bob Lutz is like, no, the world is still here. <laughs> God, that is so painfully stupid. And has it started to actually affect the extreme weather in this country and throughout the world? It has. Look at the data now, okay? Now, this is from 1980 to 2010. You see here, as we get closer to 2010, look at that. It takes off like a rocket. Do you know that 
uh, if you look at the scale there, we were at around 100 extreme weather events even at the beginning of this decade. Certainly in the 1990s, we were under 100 on average, right? Well, last, or in 2010, I should say, we had nearly 250 extreme weather events. So when you see the twisters on TV, and even Fox News has like the extreme weather updates, etc., it's not a coincidence. The scientists told you that if the Earth keeps warming, it is going to have different effects. And one of those effects, they told you, would be not that there are necessarily, you know, it's not like all of a sudden there's going to be tornadoes. We've always had tornadoes or hurricanes, etc. It's that there's going to be more of them and they are going to be more extreme. And that is exactly what's happened here. So don't get fooled by the hype when paid people like Bob Lutz go out there and, and lie to you on purpose. Yes, the data is very clear. The earth is warming, it is man-made, and it is causing more extreme weather events. Hi, Jay. This is Eric from Provo, Utah, of all places, actually. I'm actually a student at BYU, a Mormon, and a very a bleeding heart liberal, I would say. I'm, you know, pro healthcare, pro actually registered Democrat. I'm a, basically, you know, pro LGBT rights, whatever you want to say. Um, but I'd like to chime in about the issue of our, our practice of baptism for the dead because as a Mormon, of course, I think it'd be fair on your show to have the perspective of somebody who is <clears throat> a Mormon. And actually, I'm a convert, so I kind of, I converted to, a, to the LDS church when I was 18, so I have a better perspective on what it is to be outside the church, but also what it is to be in. Uh, you see, there's one thing about the practice of baptism, baptism for the dead, an aspect to that, maybe a lot of people don't understand, that we Latter-day Saints, we Mormons, have an entirely different worldview a worldview of our existence, of our, I guess you can say, of the afterlife that is incredibly different to, to, uh, to most mainstream, I guess you would say mainstream Christianity, whatever that means. There's no actual belief in, say, a heaven or hell. It's, it's, it's quite different. In a nutshell, we're what you would call near-universalists. We all, we all believe that everyone who lives on the earth would have some kind of existence in heaven, uh, or, or that there's varied degrees of heaven. Uh, so to speak. Um, when we practice baptism for the dead, we're not actually making new Mormons, so to speak. Like, we're not actually forcing those beyond the grave to become LDS or to be, you know, become members of the church. It's actually, we're giving them a choice, or we're giving them the opportunity to do so if they wanted to. That's kind of what it is in a nutshell. And as a church, we totally respect the, you know, the wishes of, of families, individuals, or, or groups like the Jews, for example, or, you know, where if you don't want that to happen, then fine. And actually, from the last voicemail I heard, if somebody left in their will that, you know, they don't want to become, be baptized for once you're deceased, then that's just fine. And I wish I could say this a bit clearer. But I just wanted to put that out there, and uh, it's it's quite a different worldview. Not very different from a lot of practices in, in uh, ancient Christianity, actually, and in actually many other religions, for example, Eastern Orthodox prayers for the dead or Catholic prayers for the dead. I mean, this is not a new thing. 
you know, it's it's talked about in the New Testament and stuff. So anyways, like, I, I just thought I'd, like, clear that up a bit. And, uh, you know, oh, and by the way, I love the show. I hope as soon as I have a steady income that I can be a contributor. And, okay, bye-bye. Hi, Jay, Chuck in Salt Lake City. Just got through listening to the very critical voicemail regarding uh, baptism for the dead. I felt like the, the, the voicemail that I just heard was far too critical um, of a woman who was basically trying to say that there was some compassion in the baptism for the dead. Now listen, uh, if, if you're not a Mormon, then why would you put any stock in what's going on inside their temple? If they're in their temple baptizing a dead person, as an atheist, I don't think it's doing anything. It's not making that person a Mormon. It's not doing, it's not doing anything. If you're a Mormon, you believe basically that you're offering that choice to the dead person in the afterlife. I see some compassion there. I totally agree with the, the first caller on the, on the point that there, it's a compassionate act. They're doing it because they want people to have the choice in the afterlife. I'm going to be real curious uh, what other perspectives come in. Anyway, feel free to uh, edit my comments uh, and make me look like a uh, <laughs> bigot. Thanks for the show, Jay. Hi, Jay. My name's Todd. I'm calling from Salt Lake City. I just listened to your podcast um, where you addressed the issue of Mormon baptisms for the dead. I thought it was had gone to bed, but um, Laura brought up the point again of why it was offensive to her, and you, I think, did a really good job of analyzing the difference in perspective between people who are, who are Mormon and believe that fundamentalist um, way and those who are not. Now, I, I got a really good perspective on fundamentalism from a guest that was on the Jimmy Dore show that you um, actually played on your show maybe a couple weeks back, where he explained the principles of fundamentalism, whether it's Catholicism or Islam or Protestantism or, or, or Mormonism. But one of the core beliefs, as you said, is that they believe that their church is the only one and that non-believers miss out on the chance of going to heaven. It doesn't square in their minds with the idea that God is supposed to be just. And so um, most fundamentalists probably just say, well, I don't understand it, but I guess everyone else is going to hell, but that's just how it is. Mormons, in doing this baptism for the dead, and my perspective is I was a Mormon for a long time, quite devout, but have been out of the church for a long time, and I'm comfortable with where I am now. Mormons believe that going into their temples and performing a baptism where the prayer includes basically giving it to a deceased person, kind of like a gift, or mailing it to him, you might even say. They believe that that sort of bridges that gap, allows God to be just by sending out a, a certificate for baptism to everybody who's passed on. Eventually, they, they hope to do it for everyone who's lived and died. Like you can't imagine how they'd pull that off, but they really believe that they will. So if you picture, say, somebody who's passed on in the afterlife who's sitting outside the gates of Mormon heaven just waiting to get in, um, the way the average Mormon looks at it is that um, a certificate of Mormon baptism gets delivered to them, and then that allows them, if they accept it, to go to Mormon heaven if they choose to. But they could just as easily say, oh, well, thanks, but um, I was born and lived and died a Jew, and, 
and I feel very much that I'm still a Jew, and I don't need your Mormon baptism, thanks, you can keep it. They really believe that. They think it's really not like drafting them into Mormonism or kidnapping into Mormonism, but giving them a gift that they can refuse if they choose. Now, I think most people would think that's a really weird, awkward, and inappropriate gift to, you know, disrespect someone's deeply held belief by trying to give them a new church after they die. But that's just what it is. You know, it's an odd way of thinking of things, but it's not coercive, I guess, what I'm trying to sum that up as. I mean, compared to the fact that every devout Baptist or fundamentalist Catholic believes that all non-believers, whether they're innocent or, or even young, um, will end up in hell burning forever, um, then you can think, well, maybe it is a little more generous and kind than other, other fundamentalist beliefs. But you did bring up the fact that really it's fundamentalism that's the enemy of human progress. This might be one of the stranger manifestations of it, but it's nowhere near the most offensive one in my mind. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I've come down on Rebecca's side, but mainly because Mormons don't believe they're coercing anybody. They're just sending out this present of salvation, they think, even though to most of us it seems like sort of a weird thing to do. But um, there are a lot of other things we should get more worked up about, and this one's just, I don't know, just sort of news of the weird. Anyway, thanks for your gate show, Jay. I think you just do a great job. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So I woke up sick today, and uh, so I have a sore throat and don't want to talk for very long anyways. Uh, so, uh, so luckily, I only have one thing I want to share, which is an email I received a couple of days ago. This is from Terry. Um, I don't know if that's a man, woman, or other uh, writing in from the UK, and and this person is either uh, confused as they state, or uh, this is some of the best, uh, driest British wit uh, I've seen in a while. So Terry writes. I've been listening to your show in the UK for the last two years, and I find it extremely enlightening. I'm also an avid fan of the Onion Network News. After hearing many clips of Fox News on your show, I have actually started to watch Fox News. It is just a poor ripoff of the Onion. Fox just cannot get the comedy right. They try too hard and give the impression that they actually believe what they are saying. On the Onion, you know they are taking the piss, but Fox take it deadly seriously. Is Fox News a comedy or real news channel? I'm confused. So, yeah, you know, Fox, it's not just a parody of a bad news channel. It's a bad parody of a bad news channel. And uh, I, I think that basically uh, wraps it up. So, you know, if that was meant as a joke, I, uh, you know, definitely got a laugh out of it. And if it was not meant as a joke, then I, I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that, yes, sadly, uh, Fox News takes themselves seriously. Uh, so that's it for today. Just want to thank a couple of members before I go. Uh, Mary Kay signed up, uh, not that not that Mary Kay uh, signed up for a leftist uh, monthly membership back on July 28th last year, and has stuck with the show since then. And Robert N signed up for a socialist monthly membership on uh, on August 7th of last year, and has also stuck with the show. So huge thanks to Robert and uh, and Mary and all of the members and donors who make the show possible. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of individual clips you particularly like through your social networks. That can all be done very easily through the website. 
Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.